Hi, I'm Adrian Potter. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. For most of my life, I've been curious about why people do the things they do, especially people that create for a living. In these episodes, I'm going to talk to people that design and make the most amazing things. I'm going to ask them how and why they do the things they do. Please join me on this adventure into a creative life. again uh, welcome to the designer maker revolution thank you so much for listening i really appreciate it and i can't do it without you so thanks today mark thompson he's the advanced, advanced research, research director, director of the institute of backyard studies pretty cool author of blokes and sheds rare trades makers breakers fixes and a whole bunch of other books he's the inventor of henry hoke who is himself an inventor and we talk about henry mark's axiom is i tinker therefore i am he's a top bloke great storyteller really interesting dude please enjoy this conversation with mark thompson welcome to the designer maker revolution mark thompson (laughs) here we are (laughs) how does it feel um, it feels like home. This is an excellent podcast. It's a great subject. And I was kicking myself. I said, why haven't I done this? But you've done it. So You could do it too. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> you kind of have done it, Mark. You've written books. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I was... Yeah, that, that took about up about 20 years of my life, all yeah. those things. But pub- publishing is kind of... Taking a big dive, it's they don't yeah, yeah. give you advances anymore, and so I did four books on advances, like driving around in banged up old cars, talking to people out in the middle of nowhere, and you know, I remember at one stage I ran out of money, the car broke down in Wagga, and I didn't have enough money to even catch a bus to Sydney, you know, or anything, oh, no. you know, so. Anyway, but it's Book a project. Okay. It's a project, you know. Um, like my life's been a series of projects, essentially. Yeah, yeah. yeah Wagga's well, great. Good swimming pool. Yeah, isn't? Mm. So you went swimming a couple of days. Yep, until the money turned up. Yeah, you know what though? Books last a lot longer than podcasts. Well, yes and no. Yeah, you're right. You're right. There's I. The publisher told me this kind of thing that gave me pause for thought. That if all the books that had ever been printed were all put in one place, they'd be a mountain range 150 miles long and about one and a half to two kilometres high. That's great. That's awesome. I've got this, I'm going to tell you this idea I've got, right, to make the inner Australia arable. What we're missing is a mountain range on our western seaboard, If mm-hmm. which if we had one, it would cause a lot of rain in our interior. Mm-hmm. So my idea is to get people to dig holes, make mountain ranges all the way up that western seaboard. It's going to be expensive, but that's all right because we can pay for it by burying nuclear waste underneath it. Mm-hmm. So instead of doing that, we just use books. Mm. Well, you'd get one range, you know, the literary range. You know. you get the literary yeah. range. It'd and be very be, diverse. That, and there'd be the hard rubbish range. You know. <laughs> I did actually go on radio once and propose this, you know, and say, look, there'll be one day someone will want spare parts for 
things, you know, and someone will find a a use for old IKEA furniture, you know, that, you know, know, that someone will do something with with, uh, laminated chipboard (laughs) that will actually be useful, right? But, um, and anyway, but IKEA furniture is useful. It is. Oh, yeah. Serves a purpose. Yeah. Yeah, you haven't gotten to hear that. I have got a bit, yeah, have now you? and then, yeah. The bags, the blue bags, they're the best thing. I go to Ikea and buy, don't buy anything but the bags and they don't oh, like yeah. it. You know, they, they, oh, okay. How much do the bags cost? A dollar. Really? Yeah, they're good. Anyway, that's um, it's neither here nor there. So yeah. as well as writing books for 20 years, you've been the... Advanced Research Director of the Institute of Backyard Studies. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty interesting title. Well, I, the Institute of Backyard Studies I, I started because when I was working as a graphic designer, a friend of mine wanted a letterhead for his kind of, it was I think it was called the S- Social Justice Research Foundation. <laughs> right, so I did the whole... You know, gave the whole kit. You know, get the business card and the and the letterhead and the envelope and stuff, yeah. and yeah. did it all for him. Sent it off. Dermot was happy with it. And about three months later, I'm listening to the radio, and and this book says now, and here's Doctor So and So from the Social Justice Research Foundation, right? And he sort of went on and on and on, and I thought, wow, that's all you, you've just got to have this facade of an institution. You know that's that sounds that sounds like it has authority, and I thought, well, what would I call my my institution? And I thought, well, Institute of Backyard Studies. You know, mm. the answers in your own backyard. You know, mm. blah blah blah. And and I th- thought, yeah, put it at the back of my mind. And then a year or so later, I'm being interviewed on the radio in Sydney radio, and uh, you're you're on hold. They're waiting. You know, you can hear the what's going on. But you're not. You're actually muted. You're not actually on there. And the producer comes on and said, "Where are you from, Mark?" And I said, "Oh, I'm from Adelaide." And he said, "Now, what organisation are you from?" Mm. And I said, "Oh, the Institute of Backyard Studies." Mm. And, and he said, "Right." And sure enough, thirty seconds later, now here's Mark Thompson from the Institute of Backyard Studies. Yeah. Went over, you know, like total believability, absolute credibility, right? And mm. from oh, so I picked it up and. It's the word institute, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's it's the power of the institution. I, yeah. And since then, I've started um, a whole bunch of other ones. And the one that I'm spending a lot of time on is this speculative histories laboratory, right? Uh, which, believe it or not, is going kind of well, you know. <laughs> is it? And there's another one that is a little bit ominous called the Centre of the Study of Unintended Consequences. That's a good one. Yeah, that's kind of, and that's where the world's going right now, right? So, although there was also a thing called the Orchestra of Unintended Consequences, which is a sort of audio project, at, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which we could, you know, I've got some interesting examples of. Can you, you know, can you play some now? Hand me that box thing there. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah, kalimbas and stuff. So I've got this other project out in the Mallee, building an orchestra from farm junk, which is nearly finished. Yeah, yeah right. How'd you get involved in that? Uh, it's a sort of it's kind of long story involving stuff to do with rural suicide and about yeah, really? projects out in the bush trying to 
and 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 that had a has a podcast project related to it as well. What's right. the, What's that? Uh, well, it's actually there's some technical issues about about this about trying to get podcasts that trigger the geolocated storytelling mm. essentially, so that mm. you go somewhere and you and there'll be a little sign on something that says there's a story here, and you just press a thing on on an app and yeah, gotcha. and there's that story that you can only hear in that place. And so this there's a whole these are all around the Coorong and Mallee area. Yeah. And so we've done a few little ones, but there are it's quite hard to persuade people to download an app just for, just for, that. for that. You know, so mm. but it's still it's an idea that's one of the has some technical things too that that it's quite prone to be hacked to for for, for you know, to when you allow access to something like that, that um, so it's a it's a really interesting area. But anyway, that was one of the things that was basically getting farmers talking about out in the Mallee who can old farmers can still recall working with horses, what it was like right to work with horses, and so I've recorded quite a few of them telling stories about the How are we going of, to be able to access that? So that well, that will be a geolocated this, yeah. story, you know, that you'd hear yeah. out in one of those little Mallee towns, mm. right, that you have to be passing through. And it's a bit like the experience mm. of going somewhere and meeting somebody who tells a great story. You know, you might meet them in a pub or incidentally meet them in a shop or, um, you know, at the petrol station or whatever or hang around the pub. Or whatever, but this is kind of like bringing those people with those stories to the, you know, passing visitor, really. And so it's kind of got a sort of tourist thing. But I was more interested in kind of reinventing the tradition of storytelling because all the books that I've done, nearly every one of the people, uh, and some in some cases, some exceptionally so, are just great storytellers. And I I realised that. The ability to tell a story is a is a, a sort of uncaptured Australian art. You can't really do a TAFE course in it or get a cert for in storytelling. It tends to come from experience, and and are often the product of very particular circumstances. And it's still strong out in the bush. And it's, and there's also a fantastic sort of timbre to bush voices too. Just by the way, and the and so so it's a really a really interesting thing because it's it's often a sort of it's the sort of intangible part of local culture in many ways i mean mm. stories that are told you know you can't see it you can't see it no you have, you know and you um, for instance driving through uh, the mallee you're driving through these enormous acres of 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 wheat or barley right and it frustrates the farmers out there that the sort of city folk have no idea what goes into mm. making those paddocks of wheat and mm. why that silo, you know, is full of their, their all their all their product, all their work, all their dreams, if you like, all their sweat and toil goes into the, those silos, right? And so, just getting to st- just people to tell stories about those things is, you know, just helps mm. that sort of understanding, right? It seems to me that having it so geolocated would be maybe a detriment to getting those stories out in the big no, world. No, you have to go there. Yeah, I know You have that. to go there. Bad luck. 
don't know. like, yeah. So, yeah. And, and, yeah, I've, I'm and just trying to tease out that. But that's a, a, bit, that's but a marketing problem. <laughs> that's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. You know, gotcha. but I, I actually think yeah. there's, and I actually think there's a really important. I mean, it's interesting talking about the indigenous sense of land, you know, and country. You know that that physical land and those stories and that place, they are they are so closely bound together. Yeah. You know that and. And it's interesting that that's exactly the same way white fellow farmers feel about this mm. place, this town. Mm. This, you know, do they? Do the farmers you're talking to see themselves as custodians? Uh, to some degree, yeah, yeah. They, they, well, they are. I mean, they're certainly uh, custodians of the land. That you know, it's a thing that you want to leave the land in better shape than mm. when you acquired it, right? Mm. And that mean might mean. You know more storage stuff and more, but you know you want you want land that is still productive, you know, and and doesn't require ever increasing amounts of chemicals to mm. make it so. And 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 they also have a really fine sense of the beauty of that land too. You know, like even Mallee Scrub, you know, which might to some people be very very plain country indeed, very flat, trees only ten feet high, you know. So, you know, but there's delicate little beauty there and, there's, and, it, and, it, and at dawn and sunset it is incredibly beautiful, you know. Yeah, it's a more nuanced beauty, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And they, and they, are, they are nearly always aware to that, you know, that, yeah. you know, that, you know they'll, they'll take photos now and then of, you know, when they're in the tractor, you know, certain, you know a thunder, thunderstorm coming through or whatever. You know, and um, just light in, you know, in a particular way that you know hits the hits the crop at a certain angle, or or their beautiful sheep all arranged, looking good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've had a wonderful time working with those yeah, people. Actually, yeah, in fact, absolutely. I've they're sort of friends for the rest of my life. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it, this musical playground is it. For adults or kids? Or? Well, it's really for kids, but it's um, it's kind of it's both really. It's basically to try and get people to stop in this town. Yeah, and just what's the town? Uh, it's a town called Sherlock. Yeah. you know, which has got maybe twenty people in it. Yeah, a, t- a shop that's open an hour a day for yeah. people to collect their mail. Yeah. Right, and it, but it once had a railway station and a petrol station. And yeah, a you drive. Shop. You go through Sherlock if you're going to Sydney from Adelaide. Yeah, well, or Taylor Bend to the to, to Swan Hill, Swan Hill, Pinaroo, and Lamaroon. Yeah, yeah, yep. You go through there, and and um, but yeah, there's about four or five or six little towns like that that yep. are former railway stations. You know, that no longer a railway line there. So, what's the association with suicide and a kids' playground? Um, well, it was really to give people a project to work on that created circumstances in which people did share stories as well, you mm. know, and it sort of was an opportunity for me to collect some of those stories too. Yeah, but um, did you originate it? Did you? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. So, how did you go about that? You- uh, I'm working with uh, Susie Eifold, who lives out there, who's you may may not know. She's used to be at the jam factory, uh-huh. and um, and she's she lives lives at uh, near Cooks Plains, and uh, you know she and her husband Simon have got a 
lovely sheep property. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, she's a very active person in the arts, generally in that in that neck of the woods. So yeah, she she and I work closely. And the the storytelling project is called Long Story Short, <laughs> right? But this is a sort of subdivision of it that I've you know just trying to get happening because we I'm still waiting for the technology to catch up with it to yeah. to make it truly viable. Yeah. That um anyway that there's but there's some lovely stories around, you know, and the, and I've come across some uh, really interesting stuff. There's also a big indigenous component there, Raukan, which is down on the lake uh, near Meningi and that's and there's a couple of fantastic storytellers there. Mm. Really, really good. Tell us about Raukin. Uh Well, it's um, it's it's a it's a Nurunjeri Nurunjeri uh, people there, and it's one of those places that kind of a really uh, quite a sort of well organised community that you know still still kind of strong in culture and. Um, they're, they're they're fascinating in their own way. They they're kind of uh, oh, what can I say about them here? They're, they're, they're uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the bloke, this famous Australian inventor. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that's where he was born, and he's yeah. buried there. Yep. Oh fuck! What's his name? Fuck. We know. I know what he looks yeah, like. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. And anyway, so yeah. we go back to it now. What I thought was really interesting about. Raukin was that when you drive into the town, uh, there's a there's a big old shed painted with Raukin, you know, football champions, you know, this year, this year, that year, and then underneath uh, there's a there's a line there that says Womp, there it is, <laughs> and I saw that and laughed, you know, and so when I was talking to a couple of the people there, I was sort of saying, you know, what about stories about football? Yeah. You know, I saw that thing. Well, there it is, and, uh, and I thought, that's got to be a story. And they said, yeah. "Yes, it is." You know, yeah. and away we went. You know, about yeah. about what what a powerful influence football is for organising a community, yeah. right? And how and how winning a grand final is this just this thing that propels them for the rest of the year? Yeah, you know, yeah. and, and it imposes a sort of interesting discipline on all the participants that they've got to come to footy practice and, uh, you know, and you've got to turn up here and do all this stuff and, that you know, as a sort of form of bonding, it's incredibly powerful and, you know, and the signal it sends to their own community is extraordinary, the sense of capability that goes with it, you know, that it's uh, kind of inspiring. So, um, Sport as a cultural exercise. Yeah, well, it, well, it absolutely is. It's, a, it's, it's yeah. I mean, that people, people don't like to admit that, but mm. it's totally, it, you know, it's totally true. Yeah. And it's transformative aspects are just extraordinary, you know, and, and you see that going into AFL too, you know, yeah. how, you know, Aboriginal players are mm. something like four or five times the rate or like ten times the rate of their uh, their presence in the AFL compared to the general population, mm. you know, and kind of almost magical too, you know. They're just – there's this kind of – you see these passages of play that are just mesmerising in their physical beauty, you know, and their 
You think, how did he do that? <laughs> how did he kick it backwards mm. and it went into the goal? Mm. <laughs> anyway, there's uh, practice. Yeah, that's how. yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, that's many different stories in that area too. You know. Is Rauken a missionary? It was. Station? It was yeah. Point McClay, I think. Point McClay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. David Uniapen. He was was born there too. I could actually say, you know, that yeah. when it was still a mission. Australian inventor David Uniapen, he's on the fifty dollar note. He he was there, and he he was a kind of he was a fascinating figure too. He was again that powerful curiosity about everything, and uh, and invented all sorts of things that were. I mean, he he had a few patents for things, but he never quite graduated into the. Into actually turning them into into products, right? He's and, not alone. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. That's true. And in fact, in some ways, that's a um, you know a, a continuing Australian story too about it's... about us as inventors and and about how the landscape produces inventors and and uh, innovators too. But but he was um, amazing, and only only died relatively recently. He lived mm. to be quite old. And lived lived down at Raukin and uh, had a workshop there that people would come and visit and he did demonstrations of. Things. Is that extent? No, no. There's there's a little museum there, yeah, yeah. but it doesn't have any any of his stuff. That's um, Flinders Uni, I think, uh, have have some of his stuff somewhere. You know, another inventor, not so famous but more infamous, maybe called Henry Hoke. Yeah, Henry Hoke of Hoke's Bluff. Mm. Yeah, that was a, he was um, he was quite something. Actually, we made a TV series about him. Actually, it's um, uh, his random excuse generator. It's uh, that was a, that was a triumph of technology. Uh, are you laughing? <laughs> uh, I love the random excuse generator. I think it's it's. I want. I want one. Right. Well, there's probably an app for it actually now. And sadly, I mean, but, but we did. It's called the postmodern essay writer or something. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. This was. This is the analog version, the bicycle powered one. <laughs> the you know. Yeah. Yeah. And you uh, can you can see this invention uh, on YouTube. I don't. I think yeah. it's pretty accessible, isn't it? Uh, sort of, but I haven't. I haven't. I haven't actually. There was a TV series, but that's all kind of locked up for a whole bunch of reasons. Oh, is it? Yeah, which we probably Poor better Henry. not go into. For no, we won't go into. That. Um, but uh, whereabouts and, and, is Hoax Bluff? Uh, it's on the railway line up north. Yeah, I'm not sure how far north. It's one of those places that. Well, actually, Henry's experiments with time and space made the town. It sort of shifted it sideways in time and space, and sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not. That's, yeah, and so he's not liked. Is that? Yeah, I was going to say. He's not liked around Hoax Bluff for no, that reason. That, you know, well, sometimes some it, people might like it. Well, <laughs> but it's, it's unpredictability is a problem. Yeah, right. So, but yeah, it's. Uh, I'm not even sure if it's in South Australia or, or Western Australia. It's. Um, it's. It could be, might not be, or it might yeah. be in. Might be in North Queensland, actually. Part of the quantum mechanics. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Where there's a there's a whole bunch of uh, trouble there. I can tell you. So what are the (laughs) what are the other wonderful inventions that Henry? Oh, oh, the quack of doom. (laughs) That was well. See, (laughs) 
that, that was a sort of... Uh, well, look, Henry, Henry actually maintained correspondence with Einstein, right? That, and, and Einstein suggested that it was actually too dangerous to mess with time-space fabric like this with what he was pro going to do with with audio you know um a very low frequency sound right and um he said that that um uh nuclear energy was far safer and far <laughs> better and so but you know, other people had that thing so henry did do did a whole lot of experiments with uh, the the quack of doom and and that um Terrible things to the water table, amongst other things. Oh, right? That's know, another reason you know, for his. But yeah, yeah, thousands of things. You know, you know, he had his own tool company. He made, you know, the rope handled hammer, for instance. You know, the one that could hammer around corners. That was, you know, you know. Uh, oh, look, there's hundreds of them. Refined bull dust. Yeah. Well, well, no, refined bull dust was actually the thing that made the random excuse generator work. Right. That, Did it? Yeah, that it actually is this kind of. Um, there are such fine particles that there is. I don't know if you're familiar with Brownian motion, this kind of random motion of very small particles, right? That, and that was his his real breakthrough was being able to refine bull dust to such an extent that it had, had most unusual uh, qualities and uh, behavior, right? And, and that was the kind of core of the random excuse generator, this, uh, this very, very fine particles of bull dust, right? That uh, did it consume at, it? Uh, well, or is it kind at of your a- at your own risk? There, you know, yeah. that's kind of dangerous, you know. Yeah, I, you know that's that's uh, possibly how he met his end, you know. Which is so you don't. We know. don't even know how he met his end, to be quite honest, you know. That um, maybe um, he's in another place and time. Well, well, I strongly suspect so, and he will reemerge, you know. It'd be interesting to know what he'd make of the whole pandemic thing, but um, he's probably got a, a vaccine. Yeah, he probably does. But uh, I, I certainly know that, you know, in terms of the climate change stuff, it was interesting that he did invent a um, a method of saving daylight. You know, daylight savings. He actually worked a way of being able to store it underground, right? But no one knows for sure where all this saved daylight is. Oh. And someone's worried that someone will come across it and the sun won't go down for several months when it, all that gets released. That's going to be a problem. Yeah. Right. So this, But, you know, again, potential energy source, if we can only find it and tap it, you know, all this mm. saved daylight that uh, that Henry's stored in old mines and, you know, in somewhere down in a, in a seam somewhere, you know. Anyway. But Henry's a, Henry's a, takes up far too much of my life, as you can probably tell. <laughs> <laughs> Although we do organise a, a a regular storytelling event up in Tarawi, which some people say is hoax bluff. Um, Tarawi's in the mid north of yeah, South Australia, probably and, nearby. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, possibly off in the hills. Yeah, mm. and it still is a stronghold of the Ladies Blacksmithing League, Tarawi, which is what. Um, Henry's, Henry's, Henry's was... mum Beryl was the mm. head hammer woman of the Ladies Blacksmithing League, you know, and they were they were sort of cross between the CWA and the Hell's Angels. Oh you know, Lord. That... <laughs> look out! Imagine if they were doing security for some rock concert. Yeah, <laughs> I've met a few of the ladies. You know, not 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 to be trifled with. I can tell you. you know. No, especially the head hammer woman. Yeah. 
Holy cow. Yeah, there is a little episode of the Henry Hoke TV series just about the ladies' blacksmithing league. You know, that, uh... Anyway, what were we talking about? We were talking about Henry Hoke oh, right. and inventions, and <laughs> right. before that we were talking about Mr Uniapen yeah, yep. and Rauken. So, in fact, I'm, I'm, a, little, I'm a little wary to, uh, to sort of talk about Henry Hoke and David Uniapen in one breath because David Uniapen was a really interesting bloke, actually, and there, and there are many many Australian inventors with really, really interesting stories of, of um, you know, success or near success, you know, that uh, our real problem is, is Australia is quite a long way from most other markets, right, and, and we're, we're not an economy of much scale, right, that sufficient scale to actually, to really be able to plug into things. And so... Yeah, you know, that whole Australian tradition of being inventors is is a kind of it's it's a bit of a sort of warm fuzzy glow myth. I, I did a I did that broke book makers breakers and fixers really about about looking at people who are really interesting in makers of things that are, are and are problem solvers. What what is a problem solving culture? What are the methods that they use to solve problems you know and and they turned out to be really fascinating you know mm-hmm. when certainly at the, at the core of them is a sense of curiosity and a willingness to ask questions to that you know how do you do that what's a way of solving that right and and also a respect for knowledge too and it's interesting most of the people in this book who uh, you know would would uh, really happy to acquire information, right? That would they they had all sorts of interesting ways, often very well read, you know. Or like for instance, there's one one of the one of the interesting problem solving things that nearly all of these people had in common was drawing, right, of all things. To actually, I mean, you you you've probably seen it on old buildings, or you know, you take off some some part of a hidden wall, and there's a carpenter's drawing of you know a joint of some kind and how to how to make that piece of timber meet another one in midair or or a little technical drawing on the back of something to to solve how how a truss might work or so forth and and it's just really interesting how how so many trades in the old traditional trades had technical drawing as part of that, but but many you know, like if you were making clothes, for instance, you need to be able to draw out a pattern to make the clothes, mm. right? And a very specialist skill, that yeah, is yeah. As and well. so, mm. so you know, or if you're a shipbuilder, you know, to be able, to be able to draw things at scale, you know, and it was you know, lofting, you know, where they draw out all the parts of a ship at full size, yeah, you know. Lord. One yeah. of the things about drawings is you don't have to be literate to be able to understand a drawing either. Yeah, and it's actually also a way of discussing an idea too be, with other people. That say, "Well, draw it out on the on a chalk on the piece mm. of on a piece of on the ground, right? You know, engineers chalk on a you know, on something, you know, that and mm. the, and that people arrive at a solution through that drawing. You know, I've I've often thought it'd make a really interesting exhibition of of 
drawings, work drawings of uh, in many different shapes and sizes. And you can go back, you know. There's probably some. There's probably some around the pyramids, you know. You know, oh, how, how are we going to how are we going to lever that block up into there? You know, we've mm. already blocked it off. How are we going to do that? You know, so. So, you know, and there's something beautiful about the functionality of those drawings too, you know, that is, is I, I find quite, uh, quite compelling. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, do you use drawings in your work? A hundred percent. It's not called a drawing so much anymore as more documentation. So some of that documentation would be a little bit of writing or maybe... Mm resources to mm. access that particular part but drawings are a critical component mm. and without a drawing you can't repeat mm. well that's an interesting point yeah. yeah yeah you can repeat but memories are fluid and mm. always changing so mm. a drawing has a concreteness that can last for mm. as long as the drawing lasts for mm. nowadays of course a lot of the drawings are on computer right right which which is an interesting distinction too because there's something about, I know in my case where I'm building something that has to have a curve in it, for instance, mm-hmm. there's something almost like draw, getting that curve right that you are imagining it being made as you're drawing that curve, right? And, the, and, and that's something about the sort of physical movement of that mm, drawing. You could have an argument with somebody that's an, an exponent of the hand-drawn as opposed to the computer-drawn, and they would say, I can only see it if I draw it by hand. Yeah. Uh, I'm not one of those people mm. because I think the idea is you want to jump through those problem-solving aspects as fast as you can. If you're drawing it by hand you're more reticent, reticent to change it because it's you've invested time into mm. it. So if you can do it really fast, I don't care how that happens. Mm. If you can do it in your mind without mm. getting it on paper, even better because that's the fastest mm. by miles. Drawing is pretty close second. Mm. But um, doing it on a computer can be very, very fast if you already know the information or – if you want to do a motion study or you want to test stress in something. So from an engineering mm. perspective, yeah, yeah, I can see that. a yeah. computer kills a hand drawing mm. every mm. time. And nowadays the computers can do curves very mm. easily mm. and not rigorous orthogonal type of curves, which is just an arc or is a circle. It can mm. do sweeps and mm. all sorts of very complex shapes just as easily as it can do a straight line. Mm. So the software has caught up and you can use it as easily as anything else to Mm. a creative end. Mm. And I say whatever rocks your boat and and have the skills to do all of it. The Working it out in your head, in your imagination, is by miles the fastest Mm. if you can do it. Like Mm. spinning – we're talking about objects here. Even if your music doesn't – I still think it's in music, any sort of problem-solving, the brain is at the moment the very fastest. Mm. Mm. But that, um, have you heard of a book called Howard Gardner? Howard Gardner's Multiple Intelligences. <laughs> this is the man who knocked the IQ uh, test on its head by saying that, in fact, human intelligence is actually many different things and, and yeah. the, the IQ test only really tests sort of numeracy and... Pattern recognition, right? And and one of and he I mean, he nominates ten, I think, different ten or twelve different forms of intelligence. And in fact, it's the sort of the secret to the success of humans that we all have varying degrees of that 
those those intelligences. Some of us have, you know, have very very low, you know, pattern recognition or um, and highly empathetic. Yeah, yeah. Empathy is one of those mm. forms of intelligence. And music, interestingly, he categorises as a form of intelligence completely on its own. Is that right? Right. And um, although often closely related to mathematics. No. Yes. Really? Yes. Absolutely. How does that work? Um, I think it's to do with harmonic structure. And mm. anyway, just that there's a real musicians and mathematics is a really interesting. So, if you're subject. good at music, you're good at maths. And not necessarily. Person? Not no. necessarily. But they 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 sort of twin in interesting ways. Yeah. Right. right. Uh, there's quite a few ma- mathematicians who are very keen musicians. Right. Anyway, and he actually talks about that spatial sensibility there's a word for it really about um, the ability to imagine three-dimensional objects in space and uh, the the skill the pattern maker has for instance of you know making things to be cast right Mm. the ability to imagine negative interior spaces Mm. you know in three dimensions be able to rotate them in your head is a very very particular sense i remember an old pattern maker telling me that you never got to be a pattern maker unless it was established that you had that capacity. Yeah, right. Right. You could be the world's best cabinet maker come carpenter because they're all working in timber, mm. right? But the, you know, if you can't imagine a negative shape inside another shape, right, and then a shape inside that shape, which is what's necessary to cast complex objects, you know, you would never make it as a pattern maker. So, yeah, that that sense of understanding of, of, of shape and, and, in fact, it is you know, related to it's almost like you're drawing with your mind it is a really, really powerful one. Drawing with you your know, mind, that, indeed. Yeah, so... It's a, pra- it's a skill to practice. Yeah, yeah. But I still love to see... I love... I just love the, the aesthetics of the working drawing. They're often, you know, and you can just... It is literally thinking laid out in front of you. In many, in many cases, yeah. uh, you can't do a drawing without hands. Mm-hmm. You've got a special interest in hands. Well, too. yeah, the the rare trades book that I did, which later became a touring exhibition with the National Museum, right? The, um, that was the common element to all those things. Is that it was the sort of the the, the discussion that goes on between the brain and the hands is incredibly powerful and and seemed. I mean, when I did that book 20-something years ago, it, it seemed to be on the wane, right, that there seemed to be that people were expecting digital technology to completely destroy all skilled manual work. And it has made a huge impact on that, that, the, that you know, the thing that was, you know, that made, for instance, a plasterer being able to make a rosette out of plaster going off, right, make a – just get a, a little blade of steel and as this plaster is hardening, he could do a beautiful rose with it, right. Now a plaster is a guy who sticks up gyp rock, right, <laughs> and and if all the patterns are all – everything, all the mouldings are all pre-made, whereas mm. they used to make all the all the actual things and, and literally run um, little cut-out shapes around – in stuff and just make the most extraordinarily ornate stuff, but the that the, the skilled manual aspect to it is 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 vanishing quite rapidly. You know, however, 
it's made a resurgence. It's made a really big resurgence by, as you know, shown by the likes of you and your interest in in this stuff and the fact that you are clearly you can you can now call on quite a few people with who've um, you know are making a living, quite a good living out of you know, skilled manual work. It's debatable whether the word "good" and "living" uh, works in every case. Uh, Lots of people have other activities mm, mm. that go along with that. I want to tease this idea out. Mm, it's a, it's an incredibly complex one that that people get very sentimental about it. That you know until until they get a bill, you know that that uh... yeah yeah. See, this is the thing. Nobody wants to pay for a dovetail joint. Nobody even gives a shit whether a dovetail joint exists. Mm. It's whether or not the draw works or not. Mm. And you can extrapolate that into any trade, you know, your toilet. Nobody cares if the plumbing's done with ferroprey or if it's done with lead, you mm. know. They just want the toilet to flush. Mm. And that's that is actually meant that flushable toilets are now available to a far larger number of people, <laughs> which is a good thing. I reckon <laughs> it is too. <laughs> Yeah, just block your toilet up for a day and you'll know, you'll know the difference. Well, I mean, the, it is true that, you know, that technological innovation in that way has made our lives infinitely easier. And not know, just that, in that way, but all sorts of ways. Electricity, I think, is the really, mm. really super big one mm. that allows for pretty much everything. Mm. Mm. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's a, uh, I mean, we cannot imagine a world without electricity Not anymore. Now. You know, that, um, no. and um, you know, and to, let's get back to this notion of hands and how right. that's waxing and waning, at least our sort of cultural feeling about it or whatever it is. AI is imminent, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. can well, debate this, well, it's, it's but it's here already, but anyway, okay. Uh, I, 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 I'm not so fussed about. AI. I mean, I, I spend quite a bit of time working in that area through, through this mob called the Three AI Institute yeah. uh, in Canberra, right? Uh -huh. Which is, and I'm sort of, sort of the occasional sort of tutor in, in, in looking at how the culture that surrounds technology. That's what sort of I'm, I'm there for to talk about. You know how how technology acquires its authority. I mean, like the Henry Hope thing, you know, how was I able to pass off this clear, plainly ridiculous things which appeared to have so much credibility that to the point where we managed to fool a surprising amount of a national television audience with it, right, that... Um, <laughs> There's a fair bit of humour that goes along with it, and it is a really interesting story. Yeah. And, as well. and you are, we are walking along this sort of teetering thing somewhere between ridiculousness and, and seriousness. You know that that we see all these sort of coded things about you know, the veneer and authority of history, you know, and of age of just just being old is somehow mm -hmm. in itself credible, right? But to come back to the hand thing, right? That's there seems to be a sense that somehow that, that you know that that word artisanal right that it is blessed by something and i'm i'm a little bit skeptical of it in 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 some ways that that often things are sort of passing off and you are paying a sort of premium price for something that that isn't necessarily better than a factory made thing right that 
that it's now become a sort of branding exercise, right? So I'm, I'm you know, I will go to buy, buy things from Aldi because sometimes they're better than, you know, something that is so-called artisanally made, right? And so I... And what do we want in our lives to be handmade? I mean, that's what... And I think that's the resurgence of why there's cooking channels, TV channels. I mean, cooking is now this huge industry that it wasn't... 15 years ago, it wasn't there at all. Now, because it's... There's a sort of hand, brain, mouth thing going on there <laughs> that you do it with your... The like stuff. it smells. Yeah, yeah, smells, yeah. It's the, it's the full sensory... Yeah kick you know interesting doing the rare trades thing there was that the sensory thing was really interesting that that the hand was the only one of our senses that is it projects outward in the sense that all the others are are receiving but the hand is the investigating thing and as as you talk you're extending your hand forward exactly uh, which is not Good audio, but that's <laughs> no, right. We can explain. But, but yeah, the you know, like you could argue that most of our basic tools are, you know, a, a hammer is a fist, you know, a screwdriver and a chisel is a finger, you know, mm. um, you know, or, and a scraper is our fingernails, you know, like all sorts of things like that. That many of our tools are a wrench is, you know, thumb and opposed finger, you know. Mm. That, that they so are all they are sort of making solid let's try our, and te- our hands. Let's really. try and tease out some idea about why this notion of handwork is waxing and waning. Because clearly the objects aren't the key; it's the action mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. use of mm-hmm. hands. Well, you could argue that as our brains develop, as 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 babies and young children, that. For instance, there's a argument that until babies learn hand-eye coordination properly, they don't learn language, that there's something very important going on in brain development about manual coordination, right? And it's the ability to investigate the world and probe the world. and Ask why. Uh, yeah, it's a sort of it's a what? physical form of asking why and, and that... At a very young age, we get the use of our hands of being a significant part of our identity, really, and our ability to, you know, cognitively grasp the world. So that is that is powerful stuff in human identity. That's why I actually think that as where our our hands were were increasingly just coming to be these things that would tap away at keys and at the end of the week we could square away 750 megs of data but there was no part of that that we had kind of done that brain-hand transfer of ourselves Mm. into that object that we could physically, tangibly point to. There's no transformative aspect of it, is it? Well, it does transform, but but it has none of... Some essential part of ourselves, you know, that that you can leave there and say, "I did that." Mm. Yeah, that's that's got some of me in it. My, you know, the, the idea has been whirling around my head and came out my hands into that object. You know, that's that's in a very crude way, but there, you know, we build up some relationship with the physical world in that way, and that the digital world 
provides only very limited experience of that. And that's why I think there was always going to be a backlash against the digital world and that mm. we are still now in the process of working out uh, working out what all this means. And as you're saying about the artificial intelligence stuff and about machine learning and big data and stuff, that is such a enormous wave that is going to hit us in its in its all its permutations how many of those things overlie one another and will be will be kind of um, almost inconceivably difficult to come to terms with you know and, and quite apart from wiping out a whole lot of jobs interestingly they're not necessarily skilled manual work they are for instance high-level data jobs, like, say, if you're an oncologist, you know, there's apps now on your phone where you take a photo of a skin cancer and, and, and that app will compare that skin cancer to five million other skin cancers that they know which ones were benign and which ones were not. And it will tell you with far greater reliability than the most highly paid oncologist in the world whether or not you have cancer or not. So that knocks out a whole bunch of very highly paid people. Right? They're not happy about it. Lawyers, <laughs> accountants. Exactly, exactly. Mm. Like that lawyer, legal stuff, that's all just... Just about to disappear. Yeah, it's all, that's all, you know, like search, you know, something that will search for precedence for a lawyer, you know, in a second, you know, as against three weeks. That's a whole little specialised branch of the law. Although the people that do uh, practice law are very skilled at arguing oh, yeah, particular yeah, yeah, points yeah, and yeah. that won't go away mm, in a hurry. Mm, mm. So, yeah, what will be interesting is what are the essential human skills that will be left behind when... Uh, actually, the correct word for it is cyber-physical systems. That is actually That's Covers, Pretty scary, actually, well, a cyber-physical system. Well, the, the, no, they inserted the word physical because it's not just uh, cybernetic stroke digital. Uh, it is the interface with the physical systems that yeah. is it's where, where, the, where the rubber meets the road. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, yeah, the interfaces are always the slow point. Yeah, well, in this case, they're going to be pretty fast. <laughs> well, once they do speed up, but yeah, but yeah. like you you know, say data acquisition or data input or something, you know, somebody's typing it away at a keyboard. That's the slow point. You have got all the data, mm. but you have got to put it in there. For instance, that's all been done now. But now, if it's coming out, if you want a robot to, I don't know, make your bacon and eggs in the morning, you're going to struggle because. Many tasks. There. Yeah, there's many tasks and there's lots of problem solving that you don't even realise that you're doing, mm. making your like bacon. Sniffing. Is, uh, is that bacon off? <laughs> that's a good one. That's, that's, <laughs> that's a really good one. That's, that's you know, that's a, that's a pretty specific kind of uh, function that's, there. You know? That's the value of the human still. Ge the, well, uh, yeah, general um, intelligence, you know, like the... The one that ranges across many different things and throws mm. them up. Those, you know, the uh, those the Howard Gardner's multiple intelligence thing. You know that that is why we are a successful, you know, wet robot. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to think about myself as a wet robot. Maybe I am though. 
Who's we, to are, say? we are just a bag of electricity and water and stuff. So what do you reckon is going to happen? Like, are you, you excited about the prospects or are you oh, nervous? Yeah, well, or? I, think, I think climate change is, is going to rewrite everything, though. You know, yeah. When I sort of – when I did the – um, the Makers and Breakers book, I actually sort of said there that climate change will be their, the biggest ever test of resilience and resourcefulness, yeah. right? Yeah. And everything that's showing up, you know, well, last summer, you know, last was summer. that a test of resilience? You yeah, know? for sure. I mean, I, I live, I mean, we're up here in the, in the Adelaide foothills, I'm thinking of selling this house because of the really? burn. You know, it's you know, it catastrophic. Where would you go? Uh, not down too low because Port Adelaide, <laughs> the water will come up. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so you go and live in the suburbs somewhere. No, no, old Dinga, somewhere like that. <laughs> yeah, that's where I'd probably go too. There's yeah. a beautiful little enclave in Eldinga. Mm, mm. Port Wollongo. Yeah, I Port know Wollongo the one. It is. Yeah, you know the one. Yep. Uh, but. Anyway, I, I'm not. I'm not sure. I think it'll be. It will be deeply challenging and challenging. And I, I think we we've been through. We've we've been the the luckiest generation ever. Really, you know that. I think I've now got a grandchild, right? Mm. And um, I remember on the day I was born, saying to his grandmother, you know that. Oh, Mar, what sort of life is Marvin going to be looking at by the time he's 40 or 50? You know, it's going to be one mighty tough world, right? That, um, you know, and the pandemic is a sort of really interesting test of that resourcefulness. And the thing that struck me is how all these people suddenly, you know, they had, they had to stay home and all they had, they couldn't go shopping. And this was a major crisis for them, yeah. They didn't have mm. – anyway. But... I, yeah, I'm not so sure about the shopping so much as just the social interaction, I think, mm. was the real problem mm. with that. We can, we can cut this bit out. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, that's opening a whole, a whole Pandora's box there, I suppose. Lots of that stuff we just don't know. Yeah. Like the studies will be done in time. Mm. But, yeah, the, the bigger question you're saying there, though, is, you know, it's – we are going into a period of sort of yawning unknown, this huge kind of the certainty of the, the world that we had even only 10 or 20 years ago is undone. And I am quite certain that we will need some traditional sense of resilience and resourcefulness. And that was really what I was trying to do with makers, breakers and fixers, looking for... You know, how, what would you insert into the curriculum that would give young people today a sense of resilience and resourcefulness? Mm. Mm. And I, I think it's a really interesting question, mm. really difficult. It's almost one. a psychological question too, it isn't is, it? It is, it is, yeah. As opposed to like a physical, yeah, I can survive the coming apocalypse or something. Mm. That's not necessarily what you're talking about, is it? It's no, more... no, not at all, not mm. at all. You know, that... You you need to be operating in both the sort of psychological and the physical world to successfully. You can't, you know, saying, "Oh, we'll we'll all have, you know, free shrink <laughs> advice," you know, <laughs> which I mean, and I saw that doing a little bit of that 
seeing some of the stuff about suicide prevention out in the bush, which mm-hmm. is a really incredibly, uh, you know, troubling thing that, you know, out in the bush, and as you probably picked up in the media, that, you know, that, um, that I mean, out in the bush it's a lot harder. You know, there is higher rates of suicide out in the bush for men in particular. And I, I, I have been really encouraged seeing how those people draw together, you know, and and in the case of out in the Mallee and so forth, that, that people, blokes, you know, previously fairly stoic, silent blokes, turn out to be a whole lot more compassionate and willing to talk about stuff than you would have possibly thought, you know, given that you know, the physical appearances of this hard, weather-beaten character actually has within him tremendous compassion, you know, and generosity of spirit. And that generosity of spirit has always sort of underlined lots of stuff in the bush, you know. If you break down in the bush, people help you. And people are happy to sort of trade in that generosity, you know. And so, you know, I am encouraged about that sort of positivity that I've seen out in the bush, you know, that um, people are, are willing to unburden themselves a bit, you know, and, and, and just and, and recognise in each other that you do get stuck or bogged or, you know, trapped or overwhelmed and talk about it. Yeah, you're not a bad human because of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Or weak. You're not or weak. Or weak. Yeah. And uh, we're not going to punish you for it or exclude you or yeah. shun you. Yeah. And when people are aware of that and can break down those barriers, it's, mm. uh, it can be quite profound. And sometimes I think that maybe those people I meet out in the bush who are coming to terms with the impact of suicide on their community and how it ripples out and how they are adapting to that and changing um, is in some ways a sort of precursor to what we are going to be facing a lot more with climate change, that it will be, maybe that's the sign, things to come, you know, that that we are going to have to know how to make that stuff work better. I'm not sure. I mean, it's, it's, no, it's, it's a we're, difficult... We're, we're uncertain, aren't we? Mm. That's, that's one of the things that... Look, you know, this is one conversation of many and the, there's not much known. Mm. Mm. I had a train of thought there, but I've, sorry, I've lost sorry, it. <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm mate, just throwing... Too many, too much no, chaos this is, in this conversation, probably. For, chaos is awesome. Know, Let's mean, get more chaotic. Yeah, yeah. We'll, th- we'll throw words at each other. We have to have. Some, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't. I haven't. I haven't done the hand thing at all properly. I see. I, 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 I talk about these things less nowadays, partly because we're trying to come to terms with all that stuff about what the digital world means and reading up about it. It's. I'm running very hard into, you know, like I subscribe to New Scientist and read it, you know. <laughs> it takes me half a week just to read New Scientist and well, let those things percolate in my mind. I think that's, know. A, well, you know, I mean, clearly that's really kind of in the same ballpark anyway. This is what we're talking about. Like, mm-hmm. How are we going to negotiate our futures? Mm-hmm. Hey, look, my kids, your grandkids, what is their world going to be like? What mm. you know, we've got in a sense our land, like a farmer's got land. How are we going to leave it better for mm. our kids? Well, frankly, we're fucked it. Mm. 
at the moment, we're going to leave it a hell of a lot worse economically and environmentally. And our kids are going to look at us and they're going to point at us and they're going to find us guilty. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the politicians that are around now that have played us for fools are going to be dead and gone. And. Mm. You know, all the coal mines will be redundant. Most coal miners will be out of work. And mm. there's some really hard questions that need, mm. and need some good thinking to get some answers going. Mm. Well, I mean, the, when, when climate change starts to affect food production, I mean, it's interesting talking to farmers about that who, who find that very difficult to come to terms with that it even might happen. Are they so, scared? Uh, some are, some are saying climate always changes. Climate uh-huh. always changes. Weather's always unpredictable, but it's been a noticeable shift in that. That you know, I mean, a lot of them are climate skeptics, deep climate skeptics. And uh, why is that? Well, they they can sort of say that. I mean, Australia has some of the most variable climate yeah. in the world. Yeah, you know that. And and that they've always sort of said, oh, we'll eventually on it. We'll average out. We'll average out. But now the averages are getting hotter and hotter and hotter. You know, and and so there is a sense of farmers who you know years back would say, oh, that's all rubbish. You 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 know city lefty types. You know, and and they're sort of going, hmm, actually we have got a problem. <laughs> and and yeah. well, yes, yes, we've got a big problem. Yeah. Uh, can't we move somewhere? <laughs> but uh, they, they, yeah. But when we can't make food as cheap as it is, I mean, we spend almost no of our, our our food is only a tiny part of our costs because we make an enormous quantity of food very very cheaply. Yeah, we do. You know, and was, with very little labour. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's mm. and that trend is only in, increasing. Yeah. You know, but. Whether or not the actual climate and the landscape will permit the, you know, the climate changed landscape will actually permit cheap food, it's very unlikely. So food will become more expensive. So and when that happens, you know, that's, you know, that's that's getting into desperation territory there. You know, quite apart from whether or not you've got a nice job or not, you know, being able to eat, you know. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, food, uh, and, food and water, pretty food and water air. and shelter, and yeah, yeah, and then it goes down. Yeah. Internet being pretty low at the well, depends <laughs> on where you're coming from. <laughs> Art is actually kind of the thing that falls off the end first. Just by the way, <laughs> I've I've had a really interesting time talking with with farmers about designing this musical instruments made of junk, right, and about making aesthetic decisions about things. Yeah, You know, because that, really, they are out in the Mallee, it's, it's a very, very tough landscape. You mm. know, like John's shed where I build all this stuff, you know, mm. he's got this huge shed out in the Mallee and, and every conceivable piece of old milling machine and, and mm. lots and lots of stuff, you know, like various welders mm. and... You name it, you know, it's all in steel, it's all in metal, no wood, no wood at all, 
right? There's not much wood there. It's only wood is firewood, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's all steel. So yeah, maybe fencing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, not even that. You know, not if, you, not if you, yeah. not if you, perma pine maybe. But yeah. um, so it's extraordinarily functional. So if I'm mm. trying to say, let's put a little curve in here, we can just do this and this. And no, they'd rather weld up a great big piece of you know, steel there and so forth. But Is anyway. there conflict in that? Uh, no, there? no, it's a kind of a, it's an amusing conversation yeah. I'm having with them. But well, the nicest thing is about it is that um, is now people are conscious that of the sound of the things around them. You know, like for instance, we made a xylophone with a whole lot of thresher bars out of a harvester. Right, that they are these long pieces of steel with these little ridges on them that are incredibly hard steel. And as mm. a consequence, they have beautiful tone. Mm. And when you tap them, and if you can put a little resonator underneath them of some kind, they've got this lovely tone. And now these blokes are going to go, oh, listen to that. That's beautiful, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> as it gets clunk, you know. And so, like finding, mm. for instance, the the two ninths principle that if you've got a bar of metal, that the nodal points that cause it to vibrate are two ninths in from each end, right? That's so. That's the holes in a xylophone bar. They are two ninths along, right? And that is two ninths of the mass. So if you're drilling a spanner, you've got to kind of try and work out where two ninths of the man, uh, the mass is somewhere near the end of the spanner and so so we spend a lot of time on those sort of things but it's interesting that they've kind of they now sort of appreciate the beauty of that sound of those things so around you originated this whole idea this project how were people receptive to it um uh, yes a little bit i mean some some of it were i mean again because they're very skeptical about anything to do with art or at all. I don't call myself a, an artist. I call myself a designer because everything I do is, you know, I'm not. I'm not attributing higher meanings to it. I'm just, mm. you know, I'm. I'm, I'm going to talk to you about higher meanings <laughs> a little bit, maybe in a couple <laughs> of minutes. <laughs> okay. but, Keep going. Um, they're kind of. They like the idea of making something that would keep people in their little town a little bit longer you yeah, know, right. and and provided a sense of delight for kids too. I mean, yeah. they, you know, that... that um, it's a giving thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's you know, like I, I love the, the idea of making things that produce wonder. I mean, I don't know if yeah. I, I sent you a thing about the smoke ring machine. Yeah. Yeah, like a, this is a giant a yeah. ring vortex generator. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Basically a great big tank with a diaphragm on it yeah. and disco fog in it and and a hole in one end that it makes smoke rings two feet across that will travel, you know, on a still day they'll travel 50 or 60 metres, right? Yeah. And it's and that's now been they've been hit Hundreds of thousands of times, you know, at science. I've hit one. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and but it's just, it's still very pleasing to work because you hit this thing and you see this look of wonder on kids' faces, you know. So I think, I mean, that's sort of something that I still. What you're going to have to invent is the one that does the Gandalf's uh, sailing ship that floats through the ring. You remember in 
in the Lord of the Rings movie, like the dwarf, he blows a beautiful smoke ring, it's huge, and then Gandalf blows one and it's the sailing ship and it sails through right. the ring. So you're going to have to do that next. Oh, right. Well, gee, I was only planning to make a giant farting machine, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I've been serious about this, like getting, getting tractor tyre tubes that you inflate and then you some it was like, like the world's biggest whoopee cushion. Right? Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. And there's something about farting that you know that you win the fartathon. Yeah, if that's there is right. such a thing, it probably is. Yeah, to, right. You'll have to make it yeah. fart the alphabet. Mm. I, I have got a as yet unbuilt machine also that replicates the sound of rain on a corrugated iron roof to and the start of it. You know where it goes. Dip, 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 dip. And as one of the farmers out there said, that's the best music of all, you know. Yeah, right. Yeah, so where were we? Well, we were talking about wonder. Yeah, sense of wonder. Well, we're talking about whether or not you had any pushback or enthusiasm. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But look, let's talk about the meaning behind it all because for you, I reckon there is meaning even there. Well, when you say... Hang on, Even for yourself. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I like making things that produce a response in people because, I mean, I did go to art school. I did get a dip FA, which has been interpreted in several the ways. The diploma of fuck all. <laughs> well, that turns out to be what it's worth. But, you know, um, but it was, anyway, I, I didn't, I, I've never been a willing participant in the whole art career thing. It just seemed like I'm not interested in going there that, you know, all the, you, know, you get cast in this kind of certain role that I'm not happy to be this kind of um, eccentric producer of interior decoration for wealthy people, you know. That's anyway. It's sort of, and so I've I've spent a whole lot of my time working in the political area too. I was a political speechwriter and who for and a Labor Party, yeah, and and just generally. Well, uh, but but before that, I worked designing all election propaganda for for most of the nineteen eighties for the Labor Party, and uh-huh. um, and sort of so I was you know overseeing really big you know, design and printing jobs and so forth. Yeah, yeah. I remember at one stage thinking, oh, the stuff I've printed it, it took four tr- semi-trailers to shift, right, and there were 49 different how-to-vote cards, you know, all that sort of stuff. So so I've, I've sort of seen the political process up close and personal mm. and pretty grisly. And yeah. uh, also been involved in communication, like really strong. Yeah, yeah, and that, that if you make a mistake, it turns out to be a news story. That sort of stuff. So the, the imperatives associated mm. with that are are kind of interesting. And so I've so I've sort of been on the fringes of media stuff for a long time. I've edited quite a few union magazines and things like that. And did you, know. you get into that from a political standpoint? No, it actually came it? from really being at art school, and then uh, and, and it was the Fraser years when we came out, right? And and there was 6% unemployment, <gasps> and this was a shock. This is Terrible. 1970. This is, this is the late Something 1970s. Late yeah, 1970s. Yeah. And me and some friends started a, a, a political silk screening workshop, and we sort of you know, put up a lot of anti-Fraser posters and, also, and quite a few environmental things. And so, so and that sort of 
gradually, and they got more and more sophisticated, and yeah. and that gradually turned into sort of graphic design for the labour movement, really, one, yeah. and that included unions of the Labour Party. And it was a completely different beast then because it, it really did meet old train drivers who were politicians, you know, and it wasn't just... It was nothing like uh, the kind of Labour Party now with, you know, lots of minders who have only ever done law degrees, you know, and that they were people literally off... As, as a friend of mine said, he said, back in those days... The, the Labor Party was the cream of the working class. Now it's the dregs of the middle class. <laughs> Sad fact, I'm afraid. But anyway, so I, so I sort of saw a whole lot of that stuff in interesting ways. That, And I sort of just generally moved into... And that's how kind of I started doing things about sheds that, and so forth that I was... I was uh, see, you know, I got to go to many different places for work and took photos of all sorts of stuff and and saw lots and lots of different things. That's where the rare trade stuff came across. I'd come across people who were, you know, the painters' union had still had a guy who was the only bloke who could do certain types of gold leaf work, for instance, you know, and he was an old guy. Or a stonemason I met. He, this was the bloke who really set it off, was a stonemason who was a 10th generation stonemason from mm. Italy. Right. And his grand his son had become an accountant and he was not happy about it. Right. And and I was thinking, oh, there will there there's there's a story, you know, here that, that there are you think about it, there are all these, you know, very long traditions of trade skills that are evaporating as we speak. And I'm glad I did because nearly all of the people in that book have died. You know, they were they were at the end of their working lives then. So Yeah, you look uh, at the photos and Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so yeah, I'm I'm glad I did. But, you know, some of them have sailed through. Some of them have you know, like there are people who uh, have continued so there are now probably more shoemakers, for instance, than there were twenty years ago that you know, that people are willing to pay money for a shoe. You know, whereas there's certainly more woodworkers. Yeah, uh, but the the I think we touched on this before, but the whole notion of it is quite different. Mm. It's more focused around fulfilment mm. and pr- trying to find a meaning. So these people are often professionals, and they've left mm. their professional career because it's boring as fuck, and they go, "What else is there?" Yeah, that's true. That's true. There's and that's and that's a very personal decision to do that. And as you say, it's then becomes about arguing that your your work has a certain value, right? That uh, that you need to be able to persuade people to. But the thing is that I think is quite different is that yeah, they want to find a market, but it's more about a personal value. Mm. I don't to, to, to the practitioner or to, to the practitioner, right? To the right. person that is doing it. So they do it. Hmm. They're doing things that are unfulfilling mm. and provide no meaning, and trying to find and something in their lives that can provide that fulfilment and their meaning, mm. and doing that with making things with their hands. Men, women, across the board doesn't matter about the age either. And then trying to find a market. Mm. 
but it's not about finding providing objects in the first place. It's mm. about providing meaning in the first place. Mm. So, in fact, I know, like, for instance... Um skilled leather work like making belts and whips whips are a perfect example whip making is one a, a supreme australian art really that, that you know australia makes hands down best whips in the world and that is <laughs> partly a function of kangaroo hide is it right can, kangaroo hide is this beautiful enough. incredibly strong if you see yeah. the olympics and you see those runners in the 100 meters final it used to be the case that I don't know if it still is that they would all be wearing shoes made of kangaroo hide. Is that right? Because it's this beautiful, light, strong, elastic. You know, it is a beautiful leather. Yeah, and so, so, so that the the art of making very, very long, beautiful thirty-two strand whips reached has reached its highest point in Australia. And so, if you buy a whip. There's probably, I think there's about 10 to 30 professional whip makers in Australia. You're joking. Right. But, well, you think that's a lot or not I many? I think that's a heap. Like I just yeah. wouldn't have even imagined yeah. people using whips that much. Well, but... there's also people using whips like, um, I'll show you one I've got out there, that the guy who makes some of the best also makes very simple ones for the local stockyard. Yeah. Right. That can be trod on by a horse you gotcha. know, and so forth. But. So that is a classic example of a beautiful, beautiful, highly skilled trade which there are people who will work part-time at another job but make these whips that people just, you know, just will die for because they mm. are beautiful, incredibly beautiful, right, and they sell overseas and so forth. And and that's enough for them, many many people just, you know, they'll, they might do some bar work but also... You know, have a have a. I wonder hold. if they'd prefer to do it twenty four seven or it's see, just that's a- see that is a really interesting, you know, turning point. You know, so to do that because often you'll do that and you will have less income. It depends on stuff about you know you got a family or you know mm. buying a house. Whoa, you know, buying a house from whips. Fingers crossed there. You know, yeah, so, I'll tell you what. Yeah. Uh, it, one of the things that I, I really wonder is that the cost of housing is the number one impediment for somebody to undertake a creative Probably um, is, yeah, yeah. profession. If you've got relatively cheap housing, like Australia did in the 70s and like Adelaide has until about 15 years ago, mm, mm. you could consider doing your creative thing professionally because mm, mm. you could get your house under the, under your belt and it was all fine, but that's gone now. So our generation's coming, our creative generations are probably either going to be more part-time, as you're suggesting, with mm. whip-making whip people or they're going to have income derived from somewhere. Mm. Once upon a time, I think a lot of creative people had their income provided by spouses Mm. That's gone. And the reason it's gone is because you need two incomes to get your house mm. Mm. Uh, instead of the one that was... Uh... Yeah, I, I suspect you're right. That is a really interesting shift. That, that uh, I mean, I, I was very lucky that this house here, this fibro shack we're in right now, 
right, which hasn't had a lot of work done to it since it was bought. <laughs> I bought that with one royalty check from the first book Is I put that out. Right? Yeah. Oh, and I've you never seen bastard. one like that. <laughs> Otherwise, if I had to be for that, I would not own a house. You yeah. Know? Yeah. My life has been project-driven from, you know, just... You know, would, the, you, would you have the, done it any other way? Like, well, I can't imagine. So, no, see, this know, is I, would, I wouldn't have... I wouldn't have had a interesting life, you know. That uh, I, I have that little stints of drudgery in in in, in, in accounting in, in 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 offices, you know. And yeah, been sent sent mad by it. Have to actually nick off, get in the car and drive. So I drive the, a lot. I drive, do a lot of driving. Do you like driving? I love driving. Yeah, yeah. I've it's seen a lot you. of Australia. Too. You've, you've you've got a Ute. Yeah, and I you know. I'm, I'm hoping it'll get to half a million Ks in the next <laughs> six months. Yeah. What's your favourite place? Um, uh, well, I don't know if I've got a favourite place. I, I, I do like um, I do like the Fleurieu Peninsula a lot. Yeah. I, you know, I wouldn't mind living down there somewhere. But I, there's other places I really I really like North Queensland too. I've yeah, been okay. up there a lot. I'm, very fond of that. I've just got some good friends up there, but um, yeah, I I prefer a kind of a bit bit more rain in a in a place rather than the, the sunny dry, Adelaide. The, so, sunny Adelaide's not bad, but uh, it's it's going to get stinking hot Adelaide fairly soon. Yeah. Anyway, I better put some firewood on. Sorry, I just I can feel it's not. But, but anyway, but we still that thing about meaning is still interesting. That about how, how you derive meaning. There's a little thing I had in here that I mean that that one there that about that was the set, the shed algorithm. You know, that, where are we looking? Just here. Yeah, just there. You know, that, maybe that, I'll read it out for yeah. the listener. So we can all. Oh, I mean, that have was it. people were always asking me, "What is it about sheds?" And I said, "Oh, this is it, isn't it?" Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> this is what it says here: shed equals practical equals purpose equals meaning. Yeah, that that it was this kind of place where you could um, sort of do anything, really. Be free. Yeah. So this says, it's as simple as that. The meaning of life in six words: shed, practical, which. Equals plus, purpose, plus, plus, which yeah. equals meaning. Yeah. yeah, if that's all you wanted to know, you can put this book down and go off and do something useful. <laughs> <laughs> Everything else in this book stems from this formula or explains it a bit for, further. So there we go. We found the meaning of life, folks. Yeah. How's that? <laughs> Boom. Yeah. yeah I, it, it was a really interesting thing to... Because I was I was taking photos of people, I and I was always fiddling around with the camera. It meant that I could actually talk to people about what how they found purpose in what they did too, and actually what they found satisfying too. And that, that and that's where I came up with that question about this kind of whole thing about transferring some of yourself into what it was that you did. You know, the, the outcome of your, your work was this stuff about embodying some good part of yourself into your work was profoundly satisfying to them. And that 
and that fits with what you were saying earlier about you know what fulfilment right but, and meaning yeah and, yeah, fulfillment's and, fulfillment is of the time that you do it, so you you fulfil during the period, but meaning is is something else afterwards. Mm. So it's the meaning. Like if you're putting soul into your work, that means mm. something. I mean, some of the, the the giant smoke ring thing. I mean, I'm going back to that. Is is that I, at the end of three days of running that at the science fair down at the showgrounds, you know, and I'm not kidding, 50,000 people have hit that and I'm there running it like a carny sideshow <laughs> operator. Roll up. <laughs> you know, three shots, three shots, stand side on there, kitty, you know. <laughs> I can see myself, you know, in later years with no teeth and a little fag hanging out there at the end of my, yeah. you know, like, Working at the Kong Curry show or something, right? And but you know, I go home thinking, I had three days and I'm completely stuffed, you know. Mm. But I did make fifty thousand people smile, you know, and I saw their smiles and all that sense of wonder or you know, or delight, a sense of delight, and that is very, very profoundly. Satisfying uh-huh. from from something that is basically a disco fog machine inside a rainwater <laughs> tank, right? You know that, and a giant foam hammer. You know yeah. the giant hammers. That's what people love. Yeah. And so you know those are. That is one time I do go home at the end of, on the sort of Sunday night after three days of doing it. You know, barely able to walk, and just knowing, well, you know, this was a good thing. This was definitely a good thing. You know, the yeah, or or the fact that. Yeah, when you do a book, does hit hit a nerve, you know, and and you get stuff in the mail or emails saying, you know, my dad laughed and laughed and laughed, or he absolutely loved that book and read it read it ten times, you mm-hmm. know, and it's really nice to be able to do that to actually know that that is that is satisfying. You, you know. can't know in advance either. No, can you? no, and some of them have dudded out too, you know. That I have I have a very high. Dutting out rape, <laughs> I tell you. you know, we're surrounded by it all, as you can see here. <laughs> There's a lot to look at. You've got dials over there on the countertop next to the radio. You've got all sorts of things. Yeah, yeah lots, lots of, music of photos, and, musical oh, instruments. I'm a terrible musician. I mean, uh, I know you're a good musician. I'm not a good musician, yeah, but I, mean, I love it. it was, I that love is it my main un, unfulfilled thing that I've... I was never a, I've never been a musician because you know, I've worked with people who are musicians. Yeah. You know, and I spent a lot of time doing sound for bands too. I was a sort of Did sound you? mixer for uh, about three or four years. Midnight Oil. No, no, no. For, for the Bodgies and, <laughs> and a band called Speedboat <laughs> and stuff like that. And, and, and that was I loved that actually. The bodgies. Was, yeah, but oh it was. Oh my god! And the widgies. Did you do it for the widgies? No, too? no. The bodgies of Don Morrison still Don around. Morrison. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I've, you, um, you should you should interview Don. Been in touch with him. He and yeah. I get confused as being brothers because we've both got large lumpy heads. Yeah. We want to interview him for he's, sure. He's got. He'll say lots of useful things about about purpose and yeah, not, right. not working in the tax department and making. Oh, is that what he did? Yeah, yeah, and. Anyway, no, he's he's good good value. He can talk a uh, leg off a chair. He's good. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good stories are good. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, the story thing is a kind of big thing for me, too. You know, the whole storytelling thing that I I really would like to see storytelling 
sort of revitalised in some way, you know, that, I mean, that's what I, I mean, that's why, you know, I think podcasting stuff is great, that, I mean, language is the great human invention, let's face it, you know, language, you know, it's first, first proper invention allows us to store knowledge, you know, and, you know, that whole thing about people having the gift of the gab, how to, how to actually hold an audience with speaking and because at, at any given moment when you're speaking to somebody, the sort of analysis between what what with what's going on is is a data heavy project for our brains, right? That uh, <laughs> and and again, you know, it's kind of this, our little robotic brains, yeah, our wet robot brains, <laughs> yeah. you know, and tr- trying to filter out meaning out of that, you yeah. know, and yeah. and I I think that is still this kind of fantastically unknown process of, of yeah. uh, that uh, that you just meet people with this most extraordinary naturally acquired unconsciously acquired ability people you know. that are curious and are prepared to call themselves ignorant are very very good at storytelling because they're always open for things that are happening mm. Mm. looking and investigating and mm. An open-mindedness, you know, which has a sort of corollary about generosity, you know, the sort of, <laughs> it was, you know, but generous, generous with exchanging ideas and and, mm. and creating a empathy and, and building on that and, and knowing how to take it somewhere. How do you bottle that? I have no idea. You know? And how do you, as I say, transfer it to future generations? Yeah. I, I came across a really disturbing thing, teaching some stuff down in Tasmania a few years ago, again about drawing something, explaining something about this. In this case, it was about building instruments, right? And this young guy who would not, a 15-year-old boy, wouldn't pick up a pencil and draw anything because he did not want to to be seen to be unable to draw. He could scarcely write, let alone Holy draw. Cow. That... And it was this heartbreaking conversation with him saying, listen, man, I'm not going to judge you for what you draw. Just just draw it, you know. And, and That's somebody who is really, really stuck. Yeah, you know, that yeah. – and this it was interesting that it was at a school with kids with problems, but okay. this whole, whole stuff about being able to find a way to express yourself, you know, that um, – whether it's drawing or talking or or whatever, you know, and and they are kind of just non-academic studies with still have immense power to them to find fulfilment through those things or lead you in an interesting path. Sorry, I've run out of words now. I've used them all up. <laughs> <laughs> I have got a lot of other projects which I'm glad we haven't talked about. A whole lot of ones about bird song. I'm really yeah, fascinated no with bird song. That's why I keep going. Is that what that is? That's an Audubon bird call, but I'm trying to... You'd better explain exactly what... It's actually just a piece of lead inside a tube of wood. And and that varying friction makes that sound. Anyway, so I've been slowly collecting all these analogue audio uh, bird call makers of various kinds and trying to scale them up like the giant 
Mm. A bit like the giant smoke ring so machine. So you just and so got to get all these mating birds. They're going to flock you, around. Well, no, no, they'll just, it'll just be the sounds. There'll be these strange-looking devices, you know, bicycle-powered things that you'll be able to make a huge flock of birds. You know, go crazy. Go crazy from yeah. all these things. It'll be, be a fantastic-looking series of devices that will have lots of... Maybe you'll, maybe you'll change the breeding pattern of all the birds, like the way the oceans have been changed in, right. you know, like yeah. when the COVID first hit back in March, the oceans were a completely silent place relatively to what yeah. they've been for the yeah. decades and decades before. Maybe you're going to ruin these birds. No, no, they're... I mean, I'd, I would love to try and get a sort of AI, like... Uh, Machine learning analysis of bird song because I have yeah. got lots of magpies here. I can yeah. I can I can summon them if I want, you know, yeah, yeah. by whistling and um, and the, the the intensity of their calls and the complexity is just dazzling. I mean, you know, mm. listen to it. That's data. What is that data? They've been around on the earth ten times as long as human beings. Mm. Birds are. I are heard the other 20 day. Twenty million years. All apparently. birds originated in Australia. All songbirds. All songbirds. There you go. Yeah, yeah. The, um, where song began. Tim Lowe's book. Wonderful okay. book. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And there's several others too about um, about bird song. Gisela, what's her name? She's Syro. There's a Syro expert on it. That's really good. You know. So I've been trying to figure out how do you analog mimic bird song. There's a whole bunch of interesting things about how they've got two larynxes. They don't have one. They have a thing called a syrinx, which is why they can do this dazzling audio performance. If a magpie singing at full volume is as close together as we are, that's about 100 decibels. That's rock concert level. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so that's why you, you can hear a magpie from, mm. you know, 100 metres off. You mm. try shouting loud enough to be able to be heard under Yeah, you'd off. probably be able to shout 70 or 80 dB, maybe. Yeah, yeah but you... But yeah. so and remembering that every 3 dB is a doubling of sound pressure. Yeah, yeah. So it's loud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, close up, that close up, it is like, yeah. you know, that beautiful warble sound yeah. of, of a magpie, you know, in the distance, close up, it is insaner than Jimi Hendrix, you know. Yeah. It's that kind of level of, yeah. you know, harsh, rapid, insanely loud tone, you know. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> get a recording of a magpie <laughs> and overlay purple haze. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm there go. trying to whistle what they are and they're looking at me going, you idiot, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. I'm there trying to get a little machine going. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I want to work, I want to make things that yeah, okay. yeah, are analogue reproductions of sound. Right? Yeah. There's, there's lots of them that, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun though. That's why there's all these bellows and all sorts of stuff in there that, you know, yep. and like lots is. and lots of bellows. Um, anyway. Look, let's wrap this yeah, up. Yeah, but yeah, sorry. There is, um, we were just talking before the bird song about storytelling mm. and I believe that stories are everything. Mm. There is nothing without a story and that's all we have. Mm. It's all we have. Mm. Mm. Well, I mean, you're probably aware of the Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey. You know, that's, well, that's, mm. that, that's supposedly the universal human story that, you know, the hero leaves home 
after some circumstances, goes out and finds something and brings it back. You know, that's, mm. you know. And he's transformed. Yeah. Now, there's something about the hero and modern humanity. Nowadays, in our humanist society, we have individuals are sort of sacred, whereas those stories came from a period where the individual was only part, ever part of a group. And so mm. those heroes were always in some way special. They were the prince or the... Mm. The great warrior. The yeah. great warrior. The stories that we're going to be that are going to be more profound are about the everyday, the person, mm. and our own personal story. How that plays out. Mm. I'm not sure. I mean, it's interesting that the hero's journey and Joseph Campbell stuff came into. Well, they are the reason why that nearly all film film plots are the same. You mm. you you never almost never see a film plot that you know it's going to end in a certain way. You know that, you know, there'll be a, you know, denouement, you know, seven minutes from the end, you know, <laughs> because because films <laughs> and television are so expensive to make yeah. that they have to have a guaranteed satisfaction. The people yeah. who fund it want that. They want, they want something that people, they know that people will like. So they go back to the hero's journey type Story structure. Now, I actually think that those are pretty boring. You know, I, th- I think there's other other story structures that are sort of still out there waiting to be told, and I think that they are going to be different types of stories. And and, and how and, do you go about doing that? Today? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's, um, I do see. I mean, I, I listen to how other people that I think are good storytellers. You know, tell stories too, and and sort of, but it's look, it's a very very difficult area. But I I I absolutely agree with you that you know, storytelling is such a you know universal human sort of attribute. It's up there. It's up there with you know. I mean, have language. First thing you do is tell stories. You know. Anyway, sorry, I'm not being much use here. If we, if we want to come back next week and do it all again properly. <laughs> no, this is good. Thanks so much, Mark. It's been even Sorry, I, I, it just, it's, it's proven what a shambles the inside of my head is. Yeah, look, Patrick Hall and I were talking about this. He thinks the same, but I completely disagree with him and I completely disagree with you. Shambles is fine because mm. it's, it's not about this conversation either. Maybe it's sort of in the same vein of mm. what you've been trying to tease out with this storytelling. Mm. I, I just want to re, you know, I want to re-harness the power of storytelling. It seems to me that, you know, that's Joseph Campbell, Hollywood, television. They tell all our stories for us. We don't have to bother, you know, because well, they, they are pre-packaged, you know, Home delivered, you know. One of the real issues of having lots of our cultural artefacts come from somewhere else is that our stories aren't being told mm. in our language, mm. however that goes. Mm. And uh, we need Australian movies. We need Australian books, mm. Australian mm. music, Australian everything. And we need stories from the Urga people. We need stories from Africa. And we need mm. all of that mm. because they're all going to be told in, a, mm. in their own language. And that's how we get enriched. Mm. It is so. In that in that case, you know, most of the stories of the objects around us are, 
you know, are from China. You know, <laughs> look at all these unless things around imbue, us. Uh, yeah, yeah, unless you imbue a story yeah, onto it. Yeah, I mean, there's you know, there's only there's only one thing on this table. My my kind of homemade kalimba. You know, you know, which is <laughs> it just turns out to be about the worst made thing on the entire oh, table. Wait, no, no, that's from India. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> hey, Mark, been okay. bloody awesome. Thanks heaps. Uh, my pleasure. We've, we've only <laughs> just started to unpack <laughs> <We've> things. <started. laughs> um.